Two weeks ago, I stood here in this pulpit and preached a sermon, a lesson, on that asked the question, and the scriptures answered it very well for us, how can God be right in forgiving my sin? And we saw that his plan, his purpose was to put our sin on his own son. And so our sins have been paid for. It isn't that God has overlooked the law. The law was answerable through his son because he went to the cross and died in our stead. Now, I didn't get to finish all that I wanted to say about that. So this evening, or this morning, we're going to finish up uh, that lesson. And I'd like to begin with Romans 15, verse 4, where the Apostle Paul reminds us, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And so we're going to turn back to the Old Testament here in a few minutes, and we're going to look at a story about a boy by the name of Meshebaleth. And how David showed the kindness of God to this boy. And in it all, we're going to see a parallel of God's dealing with you and me. We're going to see a, the nature of his grace. But I'd like to begin, first of all, by uh, reminding you from two weeks ago that we talked about the doctrine of substitution. Now, to substitute means that here I stand over here, a guilty of sin, and consequently, the result is death. And here Christ stands over here with no sin. And he went to the cross, and the scriptures bring this out. We looked at it last week, a couple weeks ago. And Christ was willing to take my place. So here's the doctrine of substitution. We swap places. I now wear his righteousness, his righteous performance. Not mine, his. And he took my sin to the cross. And we saw how that he died for the sin problem. He didn't die for some little goody-goody sins, you know, little bitty ones, white lies we like to call them. He died for the sin problem. And Romans 3 makes it clear that he died for the sins of Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, and all the way through history. And he died plumb into the, our future for sins in the future. And so there's not a, he died for the sin problem. And it, the, uh, we're the beneficiaries of that if we lay hold on it. And Paul talks about that in, uh, uh, in Romans the 8th chapter, beginning in verse 1. He makes a statement that you've got to contemplate a little bit about. He said, there is therefore now, and the now is in view of Calvary. In view of a cross, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Now we know how you get into Christ. We've looked at it many times in Galatians 3 and verse 27. 
Paul said, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now that doesn't earn anything in regard to salvation. That is laying hold on a free gift of salvation. That's all it is. It doesn't earn anything. But once we lay hold on it, we're, we've come into God's family. And so those that are in Christ, Paul says in verse 1, there is no condemnation. Nothing that condemns that man in Christ. Now you might condemn him, and I might condemn him, but God doesn't. Because he sees them through the blood of his son. He sees them through that vicarious sacrifice that God made. And so he continues there in Romans 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So here's a determined people who, in their humility, is looking for God's leadership in their lives. They're looking to God to direct their path in life's way. And then he says, and that confuses people as reading it. That's why Paul went ahead and had verse 2 written. Uh, verse 2 says, For what? Uh, for the, 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 the law of life administered by the Spirit of God set me free from the law that said if I sin I die. Now there's two laws in there. You saw that. There's a law of life and a law of sin and death. And Paul said the reason there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ is because uh, the Spirit, the Word of God, administers to you and I uh, the fact uh, uh, that we're saved by God's grace, that there's a Spirit of life administered by the Spirit that set me free from the law that says if I sin, I die. So I'm not answerable to law. I'm under God's grace. I think we all get that, don't we? Now, we've spent a lifetime listening to people, like on when I worked construction all my life. That's what I heard repeatedly. Well, I think that as long as a man does the law, he's, he's okay. And they don't realize that they couldn't keep the law if they wanted to. Paul will say in Romans, the third chapter, in verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, that is, by doing the law, there shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. Boy, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? By doing the law, by observing the law, there shall no flesh be justified in His sight. <coughs> Why is that? Well, the last of that verse says, For by the law is merely the knowledge of sin. You see why God sent the law? You see why he gave the law? He, law? he gave the law to convince us that we needed his love and his care and his concern, his sacrifice. And so, uh, so Paul makes it very clear in the, in the third verse that there's no condemnation in Christ because the condemnation come on the cross. And he says it this way. He's already told us that the law of life administered by the Spirit set us free from the law that said if we sin, we die. I'm not answerable to that law. I'm under God's grace. He sees me violating the law, not, uh, not on purpose necessarily, sometimes on purpose, yeah. But in my repentance, he's willing to accept me back like the prodigal son. He's willing to accept me because of his grace. 
And so verse 3 continues to explain why there's no condemnation. Because the condemnation come on the cross. It says it this way. For what the law could not do. The rest of that verse says God did. But let's go through it and look at it a little bit. For what the law could not do. What couldn't the law do? It could not justify the violator. The law had no provisional clause written within it to justify the violator. The law had one thing to condemn. That's all it done. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That's, that was the law. And that's the nature of law. I don't care what law you're talking about. How about the law of Russia? How about the law of Benton City? How about the law of China? How about the law in Richland? The nature of law is that it's sent to condemn. Thou shalt not. And there's no salvation in that. Because what if you do violate it? And Paul said in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so, what are we going to do? Well, that's why Jesus stated very clearly in John uh, 6.33, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Oh, but Lord, you don't understand. I keep the law. <laughs> oh, you're looking at the law? You're, you're, focusing, you're not focusing on the cross? Well, there's no hope in the law. The hope's in Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so getting back to Romans 8 again, there's no condemnation in verse 1 because it came on a cross in verse 3. It said, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Now the law don't have flesh, but I do. And it's talking about me. For what the law could not do through the weakness of my flesh, God did. It says that he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And because of the sin problem, he condemned sin where? In the flesh of his own son. So see, it's been paid for. So how can God be right and forgiven sins? Because his son paid for it. Sin has been paid for. Now, it would be double jeopardy for God to try his son for the sins of the world and then turn around and try you for your sins. It'd be double jeopardy. God don't work that way. And there's not a legal system I know of in the world that works that way. But that would be double jeopardy. And so, uh, so Paul declares that the con no condemnation in Christ because the condemnation come on his son in verse 3. Now, verse 4 is the frosting on the cake. Because it said for what uh, uh, the reason God done that through his son is that we might measure up to the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Where's our righteousness? It's in God. It's not in you and me. Romans 1 verse 17. For therein in the gospel, verse 16, he's talking about the gospel. He says in verse 17, for therein in the gospel is contained a righteousness from God it comes from God it is a particular brand of righteousness it's not yours 
You're not saved on what you do. Now you're saved, you lay hold on salvation, and that's the admonition of Scripture. And you walk in the light as he's in the light. That's true. And there's where you have fellowship, 1 John 1, 7. John said if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. That is God with me and me with God. We have fellowship one with another. And that verse doesn't end there. It says, and the blood of his son continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Do I have unrighteousness as I walk in the light? Yes, I do. I'm a little child that doesn't understand everything and stumbles and falls and I weep my tears of regret and God like a father smiles on my dilemmas, my maladies. And he reaches down and picks me up and helps me wipe my tears away. He says, come on, son. You can do it. Let's try again. It's not the end of the world, so, so to speak. That's the way we talk to our son, isn't it? And so we have that guarantee of walking in the light as he's in the light. That's walking in, let God's word direct our path, lead us through life, and make a, a, we confer and consult with God about our decisions in life, uh, in every facet of our life. And as long as we do that, there's no condemnation to us. But verse 4 of Romans 8, we didn't finish that because there's a frosted on the cake. God laid on his son our sin that we might fulfill every righteous ordinance of law. Not by performance, but by state of being in Christ. Because he gave us his righteousness. We looked at that last week, and so I'll drop it right there. But, uh, uh, well, I'll just mention these passages. If you've got a pencil, you want to get them down and look at them. I don't want anybody leaving here confused. Uh, but in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, and I'm going to tell you the wordage that's in there, and it's not a quote, but it's the wordage that's in there, and you'll see it when you read it. That verse says that he took our sin and he gave his, us his righteous performance. So you see, there's no boasting in Christ. I have no place. The man of God has no place to boast. He can rejoice that he's in Christ and consequently he walks with God. But there is no boasting. You hear particular, particularly preachers sometimes they like to boast over what they think they've done. And Jesus made it clear to them and everybody else. He said on one occasion, after you've done everything that's within your power to do, say to yourself, I'm still an unprofitable servant. I did only what it was my duty to do. That takes away the pride, doesn't it? And the boasting. And it humbles us before the mighty hand of God. And that's where we're supposed to be in the first place. Because 1 Peter, 1 and, uh, 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, Peter said, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Exalt you in due time? Yes. Yeah. It takes a little while, doesn't it? We travel in time. 
we develop in time, we mature in time, we watch little Johnny grow up in time. And so it's very natural. God says, if you walk with me, uh, then uh, I'll establish, strengthen, and settle you. And that's verse 11 of that context. After you've suffered a while, and you're going to suffer, aren't you? You're going to suffer. Peter said, if any man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian. <laughs> you don't want to suffer like the world, do you? How about drugs? How about alcohol? How about suicide? You want to name it? The hatred and the malice and, and the degradation that the world goes through. You, you want to suffer like that? No, you don't have to suffer like that. But you will suffer as a Christian. Everything you accomplish in life comes through suffrage, doesn't it? Your paycheck comes through suffrage. Everything you do comes through suffrage. But as a Christian, you won't suffer like the world does, but you'll still suffer. And so Peter's admonition, if any man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian. And that's why the Lord gave the invitation in Matthew 11, verse 26. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. You ever seen the heavy laden that the world lays on men? They finally can't bear up under it and they put a gun right up here and end it. Or they shoot drugs to get out of it. Or alcohol. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden. And he said, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is a thing of burden. It's what you put on an ox to pull the plow. And you remember what the Lord told Paul? It's hard for you to get kick against the pricks because they put pricks or goads behind that uh, plow and that oxen either pull the plow or suffer the consequences. He'd kick all he wanted to. He'd just bloody his hawks and then he'd be laid up for a while. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. What a, what a, what a opportunity, a blessing. And so, uh, God's made his salvation, and it is his. It's not yours. And you can brag all you want to. You can be like the Jew, and you can go out at noontime and pray on Main Street in front of all the people, and you can make a big broadcast of it. I thank thee, Lord, that I'm not like that sinner over there because I tithe daily and I do this and I do that. And Jesus said, that man went home condemned. But the man who was justified was the other fellow Jesus told about that smote his chest and said, God, forgive me, a sinner. He's a humble man. He's a man that looks to God for leadership. He's a man who's laid hold on salvation by his obedience uh, to what God requires. In regard to entering into the kingdom. And so 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He took our sin and he gave us his righteous performance. In Galatians 3 verse 10 through 14. It says very clearly, He took our curse and He gave us His blessedness. You see this doctrine of substitution? 
And so where's your boasting? 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. He took our poverty and he gave us his riches. That's the beauty of salvation. The time's already up. So, and we haven't got where I wanted to get. So let's get over there. 2 Samuel, the ninth chapter. 2 Samuel 9, and we're going to read the first 13 verses, a story that's recorded about a little boy by the name of Meshebeleth, and the grace of God that was administered by King David on his enemy. Now David is king at this time. Saul has been uh, killed. And uh, there's a new economy in Israel. And any time that happened, the king that's reigning generally killed all the family of the previous king, so there was no talk of insurrection. And it says, uh, And David said, Is there yet? Any that is left of the house of Saul. Now Saul was the enemy in this picture. And David wants to know, is there any of his family left? After the battle and after the war. Uh, and here's his intent. He says, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And so by the God, if you can see God in this picture. Looking upon this earth and wondering... Is there any of the house of Saul? Because this Methemeleth is going to be pronounced crippled here in a minute. And that crippling he dies with because it's, it symbolizes sin in this analogy. Okay, and there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And they called him unto David. And the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And so what we're looking here is the kindness of God and the nature of it. Uh, Jonathan hath yet a son who is lame uh, of his feet. Uh, and David stands here as God in this picture. And he asked, where is this boy? You know God seeks us out. You knew that, though. We talked about that this morning in class, didn't we? We read in Ephesians, or uh, in Acts, the, the eighth chapter, God got Philip and sent him to the eunuch, didn't he? He said, listen, there's a guy down there reading the scriptures, and he's looking for the truth. You get down there and join yourself to him. And he did. And he was baptized. And he went on his way rejoicing as a son of God. And so God's in the business of looking upon mankind and looking for hearts that are re receptive to the truth. And so here's David, like God. He's looking. He says, where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Marat, the son of Ammiah, and Lobar. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house 
of Morai, the son of uh, Ammonah, from Lobar. He sent. Did you see that word sent? He searched him out, and he sent him. God searched you out, or you wouldn't be here this morning. And he sent someone to get you. He sent someone, somehow, some way, somewhere to tell you the truth. God is in this salvation business. The theme of the whole Bible is redemption. That's why God made this universe. He didn't make it for man just to look at it and say, ooh, look at that. He wanted to show his glory in Psalms 19, uh, verse uh, 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. And they preach a sermon day and night, it says, to all the inhabitants of the earth. And so even in places like Africa, amongst the headhunter tribes, and South America, amongst that group down there, throughout the world, the message in the creation is the same to them. They declare the glory of God. Firmament shows his handiwork. So God made this universe for man to marvel at because of his power and his might, and also for us to uh, come to recognize his love for us because he's a provider. And then King David sent and fetched him. Verse 6 And Meshebaleth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, the enemy, in other words, he came uh, unto David and fell on his face and did obsence. Now what does that tell you about this boy? He, he was in humility. And he came before the king surrendering, didn't he? And the king accepted it because the king was looking for him. <clears throat> and David said, Meshebaleth, and he answered, Behold, thy servant. And so here's a confession. I'm willing to serve you, David. And that's our attitude toward God, isn't it? As we fall prostrate before God in many ways. And David said unto him, Fear not. Now, <laughs> that's what the Lord tells us. That's what we read this morning. God does not have a system that causes fear. His word is that which gives us comfort and uh, uh, in all of the problems of life. In Romans 8 and verse 31, Paul just asked a question. Since God is for us, who or what can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? You and I are God's elect. And nobody can charge us, because Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ. You begin to add Scripture together, and you see the beauty of it. You see the continuity of it. You see the, the, the peace that it brings. And so David said unto him, Don't fear. Fear not. For I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Well, when God accepts us, we eat at his table, don't we? I'm not talking about physical food. This is here because Jonathan abode at David's table all of his life as a cripple. And you know, as a cripple, David's mighty men ate at that same table. 
And they, I could see them coming to this Meshepheleth and saying, What glory do you bring to the mighty king? What honor do you bring to this table? And in his humility, being a cripple, he'd have to say none. But I'm sure glad to be at this table. And that's the way it is with you and me. And he did obstinance and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? You know, in order to be the recipient of God's grace, that's how we got to see ourselves as a dead dog, because that's what we are. Without Christ, we have no hope. We have no peace. There is no peace outside of Christ. Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, All that pertain to Saul and all his house have I given unto thy master's son, and thou shalt till the land for him. Thou and thy sons and thy servants, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have bread to eat. But Meshebeleth thy master's son shall eat bread always at my table. We eat at the king's table. We're feeding this morning in his trough as we look into his word. And as we build the confidence and assurance that we're supposed to have where there's no fear and there's assurance of salvation. Now Zibia uh, had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then said Zib Zibla unto the king, according to all that my lord the king commanded his servants, so shall thy servant do. As for Meshebeleth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. When's the last time you read about the king's sons? 1 John 2, verse 1. Beloved, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God in his family, eating at his table. And a lot of times we, we come in humility and our prayer is uh, uh, it's amazing how you can think of something and then it just goes away. I think that's arthritis doing that. He's got to be. Uh, You're talking about being the sons. Yeah. We come to the table with humility, simply in thy, in, uh, I have nothing to offer, but I rejoice in the salvation that's at the Lord's table. He provides for me all. I sit there in, in exaltation that he's given me, not you and me. And Meshevaleth uh, had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Meshebeleth. So Meshebeleth dwelt in Jerusalem, uh, for he did eat continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both feet. You know what that's telling you? 
in the parallel, you and I will be sinners the day we die. Oh, we don't sin uh, deliberately uh, on many, on most occasions. We're trying to walk with God. But the pressures of life sometimes weigh heavy, and we find ourselves off in tears over our actions, over our deeds. But God sees us through His Son. In fact, He loved us enough that He gave His Son for us. For by grace are you saved through your faith, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of your works, lest any man should boast. For we're his workmanship. You see, he done the work, you didn't. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. Now, will the Spirit of God, through you and in you, will it produce good works? Yes, it will. That Spirit is mentioned in Galatians 4, the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, temperance, and against such there is no law. That spirit will produce works. That's true. And Jesus in John 15 said, If you abide in me, if you're that branch that draws its substance, its sap from the roots, from the vine, then uh, you will have fruit. You will produce. But it's not your production, it's his. We get to boasting about things that isn't ours. And we get pretty proud about it as though we was righteous in and of ourselves. What happens when we find a fault in our daily lives? We begin to condemn ourselves when we should because we're not looking to God. We're not looking to the cross. You see, a legalist is a person who looks to his own righteousness. Here's what a legalist looks at. His focal point is in his future. Because his idea is, his concept is, boy, I sure hope God lets me live long enough to be good enough to be saved. That's not salvation. Salvation is when you turn and you look back to a cross on a hill called Calvary 2,000 years ago. And even beyond that, in the mind of God before he ever made the world. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. Ephesians uh, 1, verse 4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That holiness and that without blame is not our works. It's what Christ gave us in the doctrine of substitution. Now, I'm unashamed for maybe uh, confusing you. I have no pride. I mean, I... I uh, I'm not ashamed of that because if anything, it'll make you go home and study and you'll see exactly what I'm saying. So I don't have to say everything up here, do I? Don't have time anyway. We're already 10 minutes over. And you've been taking note of that too, haven't you? <laughs> Let's stand while we sing our closing hymn. <coughs> Remembering in all of this, the salvation will always be a free gift. It'll always be an undeserved gift. Nothing we've done is deserve it. And it'll be a demanding gift. Not a demand in the price of the gift, but in the thanksgiving of the gift. 
To quote Paul, he said, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Salvation's free. But you've got to lay hold on it. All things are ready. Come to the 